0: entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers.
1: Hi, and welcome to the real estate way to wealth and freedom podcast, episode 342. Hey, welcome back. I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. I'm excited to introduce to you today, our guest, Dave Holman. Dave is an entrepreneur, Real estate investor and a man on a mission to use real estate to solve problems and improve communities. Dave, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me on,
1: Jacob. I'm honored. It's our pleasure. Well, Dave, will you start by kind of telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do, your background, and kind of your experience in the whole real estate investing world, if you will?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you the long version. Um, All right. (laughs) Born and raised uh, in the great state of Maine, um, so pretty rural you know upbringing didn't come from a real estate family you know just kind of middle class you know went to public school here really enjoyed it and you know did sports i was into cross country running and nordic skiing so a theme you know throughout my life is kind of like long distance <laughs> <laughs> i like you know, <laughs> endurance you know stuff so those were the things that really turned me on but the neat thing about them too is that even though they're very individual sports they're also team sports You know, where you have teammates and you build, you know, the results together, not just alone. Went out to Carleton College in Minnesota. So, got a great dose of the Midwest, which I loved. And out there, I took a class called Building the Eco House by an architect who was the head of facilities there. And that completely turned me on to the power of real estate to kind of change the world and what it can do and learning about. Old inefficient building techniques and what you know is coming around the corner in terms of lead standards and efficiency and you know how if you build a big building right, I mean you can heat it with a toaster basically. Yeah. <laughs> so that was really eye opening for me. Spent the next four years down in Bolivia. I had met a young woman down there. We started dating. We're now married with two kids, so it went pretty well. And we started a chain of uh, bookstores and camping stores down there, actually called the Spitting Llama and you know, we just saw a niche that wasn't filled and dove into it as something that we could do together. And that's also kind of how, you know, I've been in real estate is kind of opportunistic and seeing, you know, what fits basically. Then I realized that, you know, I had only taken one econ class in my whole life and I suddenly had three stores with 10 employees and this spider web of Excel sheets. And I didn't know (laughs) what the heck I was doing, or at least I thought I didn't, I actually did, but I, you're kind of trained to think you don't, you know? And so when we came back to the United States in 09, you know, it was kind of the bottom of the recession, which I hadn't really been participating in too much in Bolivia, but right. I went to business school got my MBA, you know, but after that went into nonprofit leadership and fundraising and development. So worked for three and a half years for an organization called Safe Passage, which helps kids in the Guatemala City garbage dump go to school, then moved on to Bowdoin College, kind of learned the finer points of raising a little bit more capital. Great experience. Got to meet people like Reed Hastings firsthand, you know, oh, yeah. and just yeah. such a cool environment and, you know, great for, you know, raising money professionally for, you know, eight and a half years. It, I've transitioned that, you know, into what I'm doing in real estate as well. So a lot of my experience is just working with teams, working with partners. And I started real estate investing in 2011 with a college friend. He came to me with this crazy Idea where they were going to build like an 80-unit apartment building in Minneapolis, and it was going to earn like a 15% combined return between the you know appreciation and dividends. And I only knew about stock investing, so I thought this is too good to be true. If it came from anyone else, I would think it was a scam. But this is someone I trust, you know, with my life, and I know he's not involved with you know shady people. So I was right, like, sure, right. I'll give you a chunk of my savings here, and let's you know see how it goes. Because I thought to myself, even if it's only half as good as he says, 7% at that's Great, you know, no yeah. problem with that. So and it turned out to be like thirty-five percent when all was said and done. It was a wow. great building. You know, they sold it in twenty eighteen, you know, after a good seven year run. And it was the market, you know, the market was just an awesome time to if you enter in twenty eleven, it's pretty hard to lose if you're selling in twenty eighteen. So, right,
1: right. The longest bear uh, run in history.
2: <laughs> yeah, I started as a passive investor. I only became active in twenty thirteen. My family and I bought a single family home, you know, nearby uh, in a town called Yarmouth as a rental. We replicated that in 2016, around when my wife got pregnant with our first child. And that was what really kicked me in the pants to uh, get into real estate investing. Because you know, being in nonprofit development, you get paid enough to pay your bills, but you're not saving for college and trips and stuff like that. So I wanted to have a little bit freer lifestyle. And I didn't know how to do that with my current career. I'm kind of an outdoors people person. And fundraising is actually like 90% office and desk work with the occasional meeting. (laughs) Of people, it's not all uh, glad handing. So I was getting kind of ready to make a switch, and I just started diving into real estate. And you know, after the two single families, I bought a three unit that was mixed use. That turned me on to commercial, and I've since done you know a bunch more of that. You know, we've done eight units of residential, nine residential, uh, mixed use, ten units, big office building, sixteen thousand square feet. So a bunch of different projects that take us up to about ninety four units today.
1: Wow, that's uh, quite the sizable portfolio in such a short amount of time. So that's uh, quite exponential growth you've experienced from that very first single family.
2: Yeah, it's kind of builds on itself. You know, my original plan was just like buy one apartment in Portland, own it for 15 years until it's paid off and then sell it for the kids to go to college or something. And I kind of quickly realized that, no, you could do like one every year and then no, maybe you could actually double your holding every year if you're, you know, being careful about it. And that's the thing is that, I don't think you should go from zero to sixty. I think it is worth kind of crawling before you walk before you run. You know I listen to Grant Cardone and he'll tell you to buy a forty or a 100 unit as your first acquisition, and you know that's the great thing about real estate is there's more than one way to you know skin a cat, but I know what works for me is kind of step by step process, and it's not getting it over your head. It's not you know jumping into the total deep end. you know you got to learn to swim first
1: <laughs> for sure, I totally agree, and maybe some people can you know go right out of the gate. Maybe they're, you know, well into their careers or have, you know, a sizable net worth that they can go and, you know, enter in in that say 40, 60, 80 unit apartment space, right? But for the everyday person, maybe buying that first single family house or starting with a duplex is a much more replicable and realistic entry into the real estate world. I think that's where most people find themselves, kind of like in your position at one point, Dave, you know, Many people find themselves in a job, they're comfortable, but they want a little bit more. They don't exactly know how to grow their means. Now, obviously, everyone listening to this podcast has come across the world of real estate investing, right? And that's where we'll focus the conversation. But you were able to do just that and kind of grow and scale and have obviously a large amount of success in the real estate world. So tell us kind of about your After that kind of first single family, it sounds like you started growing into that triplex, right? And and scaling from there. So tell us what was going on in your mindset at the time.
2: Right. That's a great question. I wanted to develop passive income, you know, so that I could be free to use my time, how I felt it was best allocated. And and that's still my goal is to, you know, build passive income. And now I'm actually getting some. Uh, (laughs) It takes a long time, you know, in a single family home no matter how good of a deal you get, it's not going to set you up for life, you know? (laughs) So you will need to scale in some way or other, especially if you're buying hold. You know, if you're flipping or wholesaling and you're repeating a transaction, you know, really quickly, many times you can build up a good cash cushion, but I had a full-time day job and one kid and then two and, you know, a life here. So I wanted something that could be slowly scaled up. So, you know, I partnered, you know, I had no track record and no money. And was lucky that, you know, I was able to just spend a year learning, you know, 2015, 16, I was just diving into learning about real estate through podcasts like yours, books, you know, resources like that to the point where, you know, a family member, you know, with some retirement funds in excess of what they needed was willing to partner with me and said, okay, you do all the work, I'll put in all the money, you know, we'll split the deal you know, if it's as good as your projections look like, you know, even 50% of it's a pretty good return. And it's a different asset allocation outside of paper assets, you know, stocks and bonds are both paper, you know, if if the world, you know, turns upside down, uh, you know, good luck collecting those from a closed brokerage or bank, you know, whereas uh, building right down the street that you can see and touch and walk over and chat with a tenant. That's a totally different kind of asset, you know, with different advantages and disadvantages from, you know, tax and otherwise. So that was what really got me interested in pursuing real estate further. You know, I did the three unit on my own. And, you know, one of the beautiful things is that that was found on the MLS. You know, a lot of people advertise and there's tons of different ways to find properties. Most of mine I've just found on the MLS mismarketed or mispositioned by brokers. And so this one was being sold as a single family home. When it's two apartments up top and a, you know, commercial office space down below. So it really wasn't a single family home and it shouldn't have been priced like one. And so all the people looking for a home were like, Oh, this doesn't feel right, it's weird, you know, and all the people looking for an investment weren't looking at this, you know, because it wasn't positioned as one. It had no income and expenses listed, it had no cap rate, it really wasn't well marketed. So and you can find that, you know, in really big buildings, surprisingly, much bigger than this. So that was a great you know, introduction for me, I was super hands on, you know, and by the time I got up to like 30 units, you know, I'd gotten, you know, third party property management, I couldn't manage them my all myself while sure. doing my day job, you know, being with my family. And the experience with that was really important as well. I went from, you know, one property manager who was kind of juggling too many juggling balls, and I switched to a more professional company. But I had put all my tenants on an online payment system called cozy, which some of your listeners yeah, make. I use it. Yeah, exactly. Great, great software, you know, for like small to medium landlords. But this new property management company was very old school, and they were used to knocking on doors and collecting cash and getting physical checks put in their box by people making drives to their offices. And they weren't able to uh, incorporate Cozy into their accounting system, and it just uh. the wheels were falling off the bus. Less than a year, <laughs> into it, I was frustrated because you know. I was kind of, I confessed to being like an A student when I was in school, you know, I tried hard, I tried to get good grades. And that's what I want for my real estate portfolio. You know, I want good grades. I don't want C's and D's, you know, that's right. not, a, so, you know, an A plus is maybe unrealistic, but anyway, I decided I'd listened and learned enough, you know, from shows like yours to know that a lot of people that scale up, start their own management companies. And my good friend in Minnesota who was doing these apartment syndications explained to me, and it all kind of clicked, The management company is not a profit center. You know, you're not going to earn extra and tons of money and save a ton by doing that. You'll save a little maybe, but what it is, is a risk management tool. And what it means is that if you have a unit sitting vacant, you don't need to wait a week or two or three to see if they can lower the price and see what price they might decide to lower it to and, you know, feel like you're not the top priority. You can lower it today to a price where you know that you'll have 10 Craigslist people knocking on your door and one of them might have a 700 credit score.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I like that perspective.
2: Yeah. And that to me, and it's about how you treat tenants too. Like I wasn't comfortable all the time with how the property management might've been treating them. And I would, you know, complaints would kind of filter through once in a while or stuff like that. And, you know, it's not usually like a warm and fuzzy, you know, kind of field.
1: (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I'm kind of a warm and fuzzy guy. So I wanted to bring it in house. And I reached out to my best friend from the MBA program, uh, Brian Sprague, who, you know, is now a retired uh, lieutenant commander from the Navy. At that time, he was in the active reserves flying to South Korea, you know, doing planning and stuff like that. But he was looking for a full time job. And, you know, at that time, in, in 2019, when he was finally retiring, you know, it was a perfect fit. You know, because he had a background in logistics and operations and plannings. He'd never touched property management or real estate investing. You know, so it's been a huge learning experience for us. But we partnered up. You know, formed Katahdin Property Management as a joint venture, basically, where you know, just like I did with my parents. You know, he does all the work and gets all the money. I put the capital in. You know, to start the company because I had it finally at that point. You know, and it doesn't take much. But the key to it was just that finally I had control. I had control over all the units. I had real confidence that they were being treated right, you know, and we were going to really bounce back. And sure enough, the vacancies went away pretty quickly. (laughs) And all the tenants who, you know, like the heroin dealer that a prior landlord had accepted uh, left. We we started screening for criminal background and things of that nature. Not to say that neither of the prior folks screened, but it was pretty imperfect. And, you know, when you buy a building, as you know, Jacob, you inherit tenants. And it's often not the tenants that you yourself might have accepted with the credit scores and you know criminal backgrounds that you might want. And that's one of the main challenges of real estate, I think, is, you know, you're kind of dealt a hand each time you buy an occupied building. And how do you navigate, you know, those personalities and rents? And how do you try to get it up to market? You know, I've seen different ways of doing it. There's the kick everyone out onto the curb and just, you know, reposition it or gut it or, you know, that works in some ways for some people. That's that's just definitely not me. I'm much more of a scalpel, not a hatchet kind of. Yeah, there you go. I like <laughs> that. So, <laughs> you know, you, it's interesting. You know, in a lot of the units we had, we found like a senior citizen on a fixed income who just doesn't want to move. I'm the kind of owner or landlord who's just going to keep them for a while, you know, and let them be under market and just take that as you know, we'll find them a better place in the future, you know, where they are maybe subsidized or something like that, if this isn't the right spot for them, but I'm not going to kick them out because they're, you know, 20% under market or something like that. Yeah. Um, But other people, you know, the people who have dual incomes and, you know, they've been paying 20% under market, like, yeah, we're going to work on that and get you to a fair price.
1: Yeah, sure. David, at what point did you kind of turn this real estate investing thing from like a side hustle to like, you know, you're now treating like a bona fide business, vertically integrated in-house property management. It sounds like you eventually got to a point where you're bringing on investor capital. So talk yeah. about that transition.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So I always partnered with investors. I mean, I only one of the 14 buildings in my portfolio is one that I exclusively own all on my own. You okay. Know, all yeah. The- two thirds, one third, 10%, 50%, you know, it all just depends. So I've really been able to partner because I started with no money. And, you know, you're used to having no money. When you do that. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, there's a saying, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah, um, And that's sort of where I'm at. I want to go far. I want to do it fairly quickly, but not too fast. <laughs> so I started by just partnering with individual people. You know, close friends or family, you know, often the same people, you know, because you develop a trust, you develop a rapport, they see, hey, checks are coming in, you know, this is real, you know, yeah. a track record. And it was only when I was getting closer to really knowing that I was going to leave my full time day job that I did syndication and uh, pooled money from 10 different investors to buy, you know, about a million dollar property, Brunswick, the town, you know, where I was working. And that, you know, came about because I was inspired by shows like yours. I had seen, you know, what my friend in Minnesota was doing and how great of a way it was to kind of give average ordinary people a way to make extraordinary, you know, returns on their investment and to diversify their investments and to actually do something really concrete for the world. Because when you invest, you know, in the S&P 500 index fund, you know, like a good millennial, like we are... (laughs) you're not really doing anything good for the world. I mean, you might do good, something good for yourself if the gamble works, which, you know, over time it probably will. But, you know, I don't believe that's the best or only way, you know, to invest. And a lot of my investors are very similar stage in life or mindset where they want to see kind of good things happen with their money. You know, If you give it to a big random corporation, even if they do great, your couple thousand or whatever didn't matter that much. And it's a secondary market to begin with. So, you know, working with investors has been really fun. It grew very organically from just high school and college friends and friends I knew from growing up. And now we're kind of at the point where friends of friends of friends are, you know, finding out about me and coming to me. And, you know, it's not the right fit for everyone. You know, some people want the kind of quick turnaround, the one year refi. And you know, we did a project recently where we are going to refi in the first couple of years and do a really good return, you know, for that. But most of the projects I'm doing you know, our long-term buy and holds, not necessarily even a sale projected at you know year five, seven, or ten. Right. As much as using refi as the cash out, you know, strategy. So we're only cashing out seventy to eighty percent, but we're doing it every five years, you know, or every seven years. And I think that can actually be a better way to go because one of the things I've learned, you know, from shows like yours, listening to the really experienced, smart investors, one thing they all have in common they all say. They regret selling their buildings. They regret it because they, it's worth double now or triple. You yeah. know, if they had just held it, it would be worth so much more. And you know, I already am seeing that from some of the properties you know I bought three, four years ago. You know, it, there's the temptation to sell as soon as you're up ten percent. Just be like, yeah, baby, ten percent—that's a lot of money. And you realize that that transactional mindset can actually get in the way. You know, and I think in a way, ten thirty ones almost do the real estate investor a disservice by tempting you to swap out too soon. And people don't think about the transaction costs involved. I mean, yeah, they'll think about the brokerage fees and the the actual money you pay. But one of the things they don't think about is the operational ease with which you can manage and control the risk in a property. So if I've owned a property for a year, you know, the properties that you and all your listeners right now, if you've owned it for a year or two, you've probably got a pretty good handle on it. You know, you probably know the tenants or you know the manager who knows the tenants, and you know, you've got things under control. And as soon as you 1031, you know, tabula rasa, clean slate, you know, you're (laughs) starting from scratch. And that can be good or bad, but it's definitely new and different. And there's often a cost, and it's a time cost, it's a frustration cost, it's a new bank account, it's a new all these different payment systems and setups that if you had just refied a few years down the line and kept the same thing going until you really run out of depreciation, you know, that might be just as lucrative of a strategy. So that's sort of where I'm at. Obviously, if someone comes to me with a, you know, ludicrous offer for a property that I can't refuse, like the godfather, I mean, you know, I may have to take it. But for now, you know, the investors I'm working with, you know, we're looking for stable cash flows. And it's really about, you know, that quarterly cash flow that we generate for investors. It's about being positive month over month. And, um keeping a reasonable LTV, you know, in the properties in the portfolio as well. So that especially at a time like this, it's not the time to be a hundred percent leverage. It's really not. You know, even though the money's cheap and it's out there, you know, the bottom could fall out any minute.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I've heard this kind of analogy when talking about selling a property, people kind of use the question of like, well, you know, I spent all this time, you know, looking for a property and then putting the deal together and raising the capital, and I'd spent all this time and effort and energy and resources on buying the deal, why would I sell it just a mere five years later to realize, like you said, as soon as I hit a ten or fifteen or eighteen percent return, why instead would I not refinance it, leave a little bit of equity in the property, and then keep that velocity of money moving onto another property and another. And that's how it sounds like you've grown to scale to the portfolio you have today.
2: That that's the goal. And I'm just doing my first refi now, you know, because I was always trying to lock in long fix rates, which I still think is a good idea, although I now I no longer would necessarily recommend that you fix the loan for longer than you think you would want to refi. You know, cause it turns out, you know, even though the bank may say that's all well and good at the outset, you know, five or seven years later, they might want to charge you a fee to refi
0: yeah. uh, you
2: know, or something like that. So, you know, I've learned that, and this is another thing that I didn't know as a beginner, that there's three things that are critical in real estate. And, you know, each is like less obvious than the other. You know, the first one is like the building and location. Like that's totally critical. You know, you can't buy a bad building in a bad location. You know, the second that's a little less obvious are the people in the building. You know, the tenants. Like a great building with bad tenants could be a terrible investment. <laughs>
1: yeah, right.
2: <laughs> um, and vice versa. You know, so building with great tenants could be a great investment. So the people, you know, are the second less obvious thing. But then the third that really took me a while to learn is that the financing is as important as the location and the tenants. It really is. It's it's the biggest cost and biggest factor of your investment. You know, when you look at your you know, monthly expenses, I mean, there shouldn't be anything bigger than your, you know, uh, <laughs> pity, you know, principal and interest. And if you're escrowing taxes and insurance and that kind of thing, which I always say, hey, if the bank will take that headache off your plate and do it for you for free, I mean, take advantage of that. You know, for all the 30-year fixed loans, banks typically will do that and want to. The financing is such a critical part and learning about the implications of fixed terms, the implications of amortization. 20-year versus 25-year, huge difference in your cash flow, way bigger difference than a lot of your utilities or those kind of things. Learning about, you know, the total period of the loan, like after five years, are you going to be high and dry and have to go on your knees to the bank to get another loan in the bottom of the worst recession ever? Or do you actually have a 20 or 25-year loan period that can refix every five years or go variable? You know, these are really important you know, factors to your investment that I just never knew about. I was like, Oh yeah, just get a loan from a banker, you know? And I, I didn't shop, you know, I didn't shop around. And each time that I've done a bigger deal, I've like doubled the amount of banks that I've talked to. You know, I've gone from one to two or three to five or six or seven to now like 15 banks. And I always recommend local banks. You know, I don't really work with the Wells Fargo's and, you know, banks that have, you know, billion dollar criminal charges against them and stuff. No, <laughs> yeah, no, fair. anyone listening who might work for those institutions, but I'm just kind of a local guy and I think keeping money in your own community is awesome. And, you know, if you know what hits the fan, you really want to be able to walk into a human being that you know and have a relationship with, you can explain the story. And then you might get your loan deferral. Whereas if you're just emailing uh, Bank of America, good luck, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, you're a number to them. You're just liquidity to them. You know, if they need liquidity, they're going to find a way in, the, in your loan covenants to make it do. You know, that's what the lawyers tell me. <laughs> and I yeah. believe it. And we saw it in 08. And I think we will see it soon, you know, in 2021. So, you know, I'm a big believer in local banks, in working with different ones, because sometimes... A bank is hungry, you know, to give out money and loan it out. They've got too much, you know. Other right. times they're not hungry. They don't want to loan out. And they express that in the rate and terms they're giving you. Some banks like, you know, that kind of deal and that kind of location. Others don't. And again, they'll express that in the rate and terms they're offering you. And getting to know the people in the banks and which banks are looking for what is just a whole new world that I didn't know about. But it's huge. You know, getting a good interest rate, a good amortization, good terms. I mean. That is really key to the success of anyone's portfolio long-term.
1: I completely agree. Having the ability to leverage real estate is one of the many benefits that come with the space and the territory, right? Now, to some people who are new to the world of real estate investing, debt might still seem like a bad term. I hope that I've talked about this enough on the podcast at this point with 340 plus episodes in talking about the powers of debt and leverage that many of the audience members are probably pro-debt-minded. But if we have got anybody new tuning into the show, the power to be able to place debt on a property and have the tenants source that debt for you is so powerful. And that's really where you get the main benefit of investing in real estate, among many others, like tax benefits and depreciation and cash flows and so on and so on. Right, But leverage, yeah, I couldn't talk enough about it.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And it really clicked with me because I was, you know, a nerd growing up. I would play a lot of board games and strategy games. And a lot of those games are based around building your productive capacity the fastest, you know, and, and getting that wheel turning that starts spinning off, you know, the units or utility or soldiers or whatever it is you need to like win the game. It's that wheel turning. And that's what a building is. You know, it, it's that thing that produces for you. You know, Robert Kiyosaki put it really well, I thought, where, you know, he basically said, All right, if you buy something for a dollar that pays you a dollar ten, how many of those can you afford to own? And the answer is infinite. You know, like that's a good <laughs> thing. <laughs> you know, it's there's no maximum of what you can do as long as it is cash flowing. But that is really the key. And I think that's the danger that people can get into is if you're over-leveraged and your units are not in a kind of low risk profile all it takes is one or two vacancies to take you down. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. And that is dangerous. So I think it is important to realize that real estate can be wonderful, but it's not just a magic bullet that, you know, no matter what you do with it, you'll turn out okay. And I think a lot of people had that idea, you know, in 06, 07, they just saw everything going up double digit percentages every year. And I do feel like in this depression, which is what I think it will be, unfortunately, in the years to come, Real estate won't be the culprit quite as badly, you know, because we got so badly burned the last time and we were so reformed, you know, with Dodd-Frank and all these different things that came after the Great Recession that banks haven't been as loosey-goosey with real estate. And thus, I don't think there will be quite the same calamity with it. But inevitably, you know, the, the rate of loan deferral right now and delinquency is higher than it was at the peak of the Great Recession. And yet, the rate of foreclosure is like non existent. It's normal, you know? So, those two realities can't coexist forever. (laughs) Right.
1: With all the mortgage forbearance and eviction moratoriums. And yeah. Well, Dave, I know you're a big proponent of doing good in the communities you invest in. And as, as real estate investors, you know, we're first tasked with solving problems, but secondly, creating win win solutions. And that goes across the board from creating win win solutions with our residents creating win-win solutions with our investors, with our team members, our partners, our lenders, all the many people that are you know part of this real estate investing team you build. Talk about how you've been able to do that in your own portfolio, in your own life.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. There's two areas that I want to talk about. One is working with new immigrants and the other is energy efficiency, which are both kind of topics that I think a lot of people forget about. You know, With new immigrants it just kind of fell on to me by chance where uh, portland maine got a big influx of immigrants asylum seekers coming you know from angola and congo you know seeking a better life in the united states they all heard that maine was a great place to be so they came to portland with you know no possessions no money and you know we were housing them you know in the basketball teams you know court basically the expo center got made into an emergency shelter this was the summer of 2019 and i just thought i want to help i want to help these people start you know, their life here and create the American dream. I mean, that's what this country is all about. So I called up the city and was just like, hey, I happen to have a vacancy right now. I'm a landlord. And, you know, I don't need the credit and background and all the usual stuff. You know, I don't even need them to be able to pay rent right away as long as there's a way they can pay it soon. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to do this for free. I can't run a charity. But, you know, is there any way, you know, that could work out? And I just kind of left it open-ended. And sure enough, they had a family from Rwanda that was in a shelter. They had come legally with visas They had work permits. They came to my unit. The city paid their first month's rent. The local town paid the next month. And by the third month, Jacob, they had like four jobs between the two of them. And they were paying market rent. They've been some of my best tenants ever. You know, he learned to drive. He got a car. His kid's in the same daycare with ours now. And it has just been really gratifying to see that process of how you can go in this country from nothing. I mean, just, you know, you're surviving a genocide, getting out of your country, fleeing, crossing the Rio Grande with your kids in your back to, you know, working two jobs, owning a car, you know, paying taxes in the space of like three months. And landlords, you know, can make that happen. And we've done that five times now. We're just literally today moving in another Angolan family to a different building. And, you know, it's been really great. You know, people can donate, you know, use stuff, uh, help outfit the units. And, it was a way for people who wanted to help, but didn't know how. And you just see these terrible headlines. I think immigration is just a politicized, bad rap kind of issue. But almost anyone listening to this, unless you're completely Native American, you know, we all came here at one point and needed some help at one point. And it's really gratifying to be able to do that, you know, and give that help to people. So, and you get paid for it. I tell people like, I'm not running a charity. Like I'm getting, I'm collecting rent every month, you know, from the tenants, And they're great tenants. They might take a little more education, a little more handholding at first, but you know they're good, hardworking, honest people, and it's been a great experience. So you know that's been awesome working with immigrants. And then you know with energy efficiency, one of the big things that people don't think about is that's one of your biggest expenses up north. You know here yeah. in Maine, I mean the heating bill is huge. That can be a deal killer. And I've bought several buildings where they're not only heating the apartments and the, the first and second floors, they're heating the basement because it's so poorly insulated that the pipes will freeze if they don't. And some buildings, that's all they're heating. I mean, I've had buildings that are paying four or six grand a year just to heat the basement that keeps the pipes from freezing. And all you have to do is bring in an insulation company, do spray foam around all the walls of the basement, get the air sealed, the doors and windows, you know, so you'll spend, you know, maybe five to 10 grand doing that on an average, you know, five or 10 unit apartment building up here. But that's what you're paying almost every winter. So the return on investment can be 50 to 100% right off the bat. That's pretty hard to do, you know, anywhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you suit, you turbocharge your NOI because literally on so many of my performers that big, you know, four, six, seven grand a year heating bill, just cross it off. It's done. Because what we do is we either stop heating the basement, the tenants were already paying their own heat. Or if we're heating all the tenant units, what we'll do is put in a heat pump into each unit. So these cost, you know, three to five grand each, similar to a Renai heater. But they have the benefit of filtering the air, they dehumidify, and they can provide AC in the summer, as you probably love down there, where you guys are. So, you know, it's a win-win. It's an amenity that you can brag about, you know, in your listing. The tenant pays the electric bill in almost every case in Maine. So if the heat's electric, the tenant's paying the heat. So you get that line item off of, you know, your calling, Are you getting the same benefit, but you can outcompete you know, the other buildings that are including heat, you know, in their cost. And your NOI is higher for it, so it's really to me a win-win situation. There's great rebates in a lot of the northern states, you know, for heat pumps, and they work great. It's been my house has two of them. That's all we use for heat. It's been negative twenty Fahrenheit outside. We're like seventy-five and uh, tropical Bolivian temperatures inside. So it's an awesome thing. <laughs> I
1: love it. Yeah, just two great examples there, Dave, of how a real estate investor can do good in one's community and you know kind of couple that technology that kind of innovation along with you know that capital improvement aspect not to mention you know what you're doing with you know providing housing to immigrants such a feel good story there it's awesome to see people come here and get on their feet especially with just kind of the news in today's in today's world right lots of negative stigma around immigration and things like that but that's awesome it just goes to show that real estate investors, landlords, aren't this Scrooge McDuck hanging out in their penthouse mansion, you know, just, you know, all in it for themselves. So glad to see you doing that for the uh, rest of us.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's been gratifying it. And that was the thing that clicked for me, actually. That was, I had that prejudice or stigma against real estate. I just associated it, yeah, with like the greedy landlord, you know, it's like a parody. And it it was when I finally kind of clicked on me as like, not only, like I can make my own house really green, you know, I can put solar panels and heat pumps in there and try to help climate change that way. But one little house is not going to do that much. But if I build a portfolio of hundreds of units, and we actually make money doing this, that can change the whole world. And so that's why I want to teach people about how to do that. There's a lot of different ways, you know, we haven't talked about people can research online that they make great sense, you know, not all of them. I mean, you don't necessarily want Anderson windows in your rental units. But you know, there's a lot of great ways that landlords can do well by doing good and still, you know, get a great return on their investment. Yeah.
1: Here in Houston, Texas, sometimes we do have to turn our heaters down in our brutal winters down here when it gets to that, you know, <laughs> mid 50 degrees outside, but we, we tend to survive. Oh, man. 50 is like I'll go from tank top to T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dave, hey, it's been a lot of fun talking with you, learning about how you've kind of you know journeyed into the world of real estate investing, turned it from a side hustle to your full-time business now, treating it like such, vertically integrated with your property management, your rental portfolio, and just doing good for the community. It's awesome to see. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. As we're wrapping up here, we'd like to end with every guest with the lightning round, just a series of questions we fire at you. Are you up for
2: it? Let's bring it on. Let's do it.
1: All right. The first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate, and then what did you do to overcome that?
2: Great question. I think for me, it was having no capital. You know, no no real money to put down. And you know, I partnered with family that had that and were willing to believe in me and you know take a chance. After I had you know put in that of learning. You know, I had time, but I had no money, so I had to be a little creative. And that's you know how I solved that problem. Yeah, been
1: there. <laughs> Well, Dave, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success?
2: I think it's staying positive. I think it's just being positive to other people, positive on life. You know, it really is, if you have good energy and you're positive, I think you can do almost anything. And the inverse is true. If you're negative and you're down, you can't do anything. <laughs> yeah. So uh, other good habits will come from that first kind of attitude piece of it. I like that. Well, how about
1: an online resource do you find valuable in your day-to-day?
2: I want to give you a couple because they're so good. Okay. Uh, One is an app called Genius Scan, which is a free scanner for documents. And so anytime you get something in the mail and you need to digitize it and send it out, it not only takes the picture, but it like uh, formats it. It looks like an amazingly perfect scan. Awesome app. Rental Hero is online accounting software that just kicks the butt of QuickBooks. And it's way cheaper, way better for rental properties. So I used to use Rental Hero for everything. I mean, now that I own a property management company, we went to Buildium, you know, which is okay, not great. Uh, now we're with Appfolio, which we love. <laughs> so they have their own kind of built-in accounting suite, so I'm not using Rental Hero anymore. But for anyone you know, just sort of landlording, I think Rental Hero is awesome. Cozy, like we mentioned, and then finally, Bigger Pockets online, you know, I think is a great resource. Awesome! Sorry,
1: no, that's great. We'll link all those resources in the show notes that you mentioned. Thanks for that, Dave. What book would you recommend to the listeners, and why?
2: Well, I'm a bibliophile too, Jacob. I, my house is full of books; it's a problem. So I could bibliophile. Choose. I like it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I've written a couple books too, so yes. I, we can talk again. But a great one that you yeah, have never heard on a real estate investing podcast is called "Let My People Go Surfing." by Yvon Chouinard. He's the founder of Patagonia, you know the clothing company. Yeah, okay. And it is a dynamite business book and it teaches you this sustainable growth. And he has his MBA management style, management by absence. Well, he'll just go climb a mountain in Patagonia, tell his team like, deal with it while I'm gone. Like, I'm not gonna be here to answer phones for a month. Like, you know, lead. And it's that delegation to your team, you know, that I think he teaches. And then another great one that I'm halfway through right now is called Investment Biker by Jim Rogers. Yeah, he's a you know famous investor in the world. He kind of yeah. quit Wall Street and then motorcycled you know from Europe through Asia and all over, and is just kind of giving his economic observations around. So those are both not directly related to real estate, but I think they're part of those mindset books. You know, like the rich dad, poor dad, that can really help you get a firm base.
1: Great, those are both new to me, so I'll definitely check them out. We'll link both of those in the show notes for audience members. Dave, last question and then lightning round is if you were to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you yeah. tell 20-year-old Dave?
2: Yeah, that's is another question I love in your show. Well, first of all, I don't think I should have started at 20. Some people should, but I don't think I was ready. I would have warned myself about the recession. I would have told myself, "Hey, you know, uh, in 08 to 2011, just buy like there's no tomorrow." <laughs> you know. Yeah. But in all seriousness, what I would have done is tried to erase some of that stigma against landlords and say, this is actually not just a money-making car sales kind of avenue. This is a way that you can change the world, be a good neighbor to hundreds of people. And I think it's really a area where anyone can make a great difference. So I think it was that, again, mindset piece. I think young people should travel. You don't necessarily want to be tying yourself down at 20 with tons of properties unless you're, it's right for you. But for me, I think by 25 or 30, then it was right for me.
1: I love it. Well, Dave, hey, it's been so much fun talking with you on the podcast. You obviously are very active in your market. I'm sure people reach out to you all the time and want to connect further with you. If people are listening in and want to you know, continue the conversation, reach out, look you up, where's the best place for them to find you?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a commercial broker in Maine. Uh, you can reach me at holmanhomes.com. So that's H-O-L-M-A-N-H-O-M-E-S.com. And then our property management company is katahdinmanagement.com. That's that mountain. Mount Katahdin is the northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail. So Mainers, your wife or fiance, excuse me, will know. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'll have
1: to hit her on some word. trivia.
2: Yeah. It's spelled uh, K-A-T-A-H-D-I-N, then the word management.com.
1: All right. For all the people that are struggling with that word like I am, I'll link it in the show notes. But hey, Dave, it's been so much fun talking with you. Really inspiring to see what you're doing in the world of real estate investing, how you're being a great real estate investor, giving back to the communities, creating win-win scenarios. Really inspiring for everybody listening in, I'm sure. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Look forward to having you back on in the near future.
2: Thank you. Thanks for doing this show. It's a great service for so many people. So I appreciate what you do and have a great day. Thank you so much, Dave. Take care. Bye.
0: Bye. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom LLC exclusively.